God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him, love ye heavenly host. And be seated, please, and take your Bibles and turn to Numbers chapter 6. Numbers chapter 6, uh, we're going to be in verse uh, 22, but again, making a special note as always that because the Lord Himself wrote this, uh, he's able to write it with infinite wisdom as he has. So wrote it with an original reading audience, the people of God who read it under Moses. Wrote it with a later reading audience, the people of God as they struggled with fidelity and then eventually were uh, failed and then moved out of the land. For a reading audience that uh, wrestled through the Messiah coming in Jesus and then now even uh, a reading audience thousands of years removed. The beautiful thing of an infinitely wise author is that this was written for all of them, but also written for us, so that when we go to number 6, verse 22 through 27, we can say, this is God's word for us today. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. Let's pray. Father, we pray that the Spirit, your Spirit, that He would be busy in our hearts. Even now, give us faith, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. I would be lying if I said that General Assembly was the most enjoyable or fun thing that I will do this year. For those that don't know what that is, that is our annual denominational business meeting. And for those that work on committees like our elders, we work very hard for you. It's basically committee meetings punctuated by meals or worship services that run effectively from Monday at 10 a.m. until this case about Thursday at 8 p.m., just the whole time. Uh, Usually there's one day in there that runs at least 12 hours, sometimes 16 hours. 16-hour business day of committee work. That is as much fun as it sounds. <clears throat> That's to say not at all. This year, though, was very, it was particularly sweet for me for two reasons. One, because uh, this was the first time I've been anywhere nationally since, as Tom prayed earlier, I almost died in October. And it was really a delight to have so many people, a lot of them I didn't even know, that would just come up and give me the biggest hugs and say, we prayed so hard for you. 
And I'm like, I don't know who you are, man. (laughs) Please tell your people thank you, particularly on behalf of my wife and my children and my church. I I bet you I had at least 30 people that came up to me. I bet you at least 10 of them. I had no idea who they were. That was exceptionally sweet to be able to recount over and over and over and over God's miracle for me. I think I told that story probably at least 10 times, maybe more, that just the Lord did a miracle and I'm still alive. Secondly, kind of the counterpoint to that was even as our business started, the stated clerk, he's kind of the the chief administrator for the entire denomination, gave an update on the status of the PCA as a whole and an update on the status of kind of conservative churches in America. And those who haven't really paid attention or followed the numbers, COVID has been, we might say, catastrophic for the church in America. Crazy stats coming out of places like some of your mainline churches are expecting to lose 40% of their membership over these three years from COVID. And it was story after story after story of just hearing the kind of just destruction of the church in America. Meanwhile, our elders are sitting there grinning like idiots because the Lord has been so kind to us. Right? Your average church, they're saying even in conservative PCA circles, they only have maximum return of 80% of their membership since COVID started. We're like 220% of our membership. Talking about financial struggles and ministries, talking about people having a hard time, and yet here we are just laughing, not at their misfortune, but laughing at God's blessing. We claim no credit. We, we can't boast. <laughs> In the middle of a worldwide pandemic, the Lord blessed us with a building, knocked it down, built it again, struck the guy building it dead in the parking lot, resuscitated him, let him die in the ambulance again, resuscitated him again. He's fine. Doubled our men- membership more than probably, I guess, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, doubled our money almost. I mean, last Sunday, we received more members than the entire size of the church when I started pastoring this church in one Sunday. I mean, when I started here, we had 18 people. We received more than that last Sunday. We've got more that I've got to get up in line. I just haven't had a chance to get it organized. There's kind of really two options emotionally as we look kind of at the devastation of everyone else around us, is we could either kind of grow extra long arms that are extra skilled at patting ourselves on the back. Probably not a good idea and pretty gross. Or we can devote ourselves to praising the one who's blessed us. We can devote our days, our energy, our times, and our moments to praising the one who's blessed us. A number of my pastor friends at General Assembly asked me how my preaching has changed since I mostly died, pulled my little Lazarus routine in October. I said, I, I'm not sure entirely. I can't tell it. I do know one thing that I'm intentionally kind of emotionally zealous about 
is that I want to spend the rest of my life, there's plenty of things I can talk about in the Bible, but I want to talk about the promises of God. That's the hill I want to die on for the rest of my life, talking about the promises of God. Number six, we have one of those promises that you've probably heard spoken so many times, you could probably memorize it or recite it if you haven't memorized it on purpose. But just like so many of those important things in our lives, like eating and breathing and things like that, we do it so regularly we forget about what we're actually doing. And so sermons like this are good, though difficult, to cause us to stop and to pay attention to words that we've heard so many times, right? Hardest passage in the Bible to preach, John 3, 16, because we've heard it so many times, we stop listening. What we have in verses 24, 25, and 26 in the English is just a simple little poem. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In English, it's simple, it's quick, it's easy, it's just pleasant. In Hebrew, it's not, actually. In Hebrew, this is one of the most complicated, beautifully arranged little pieces of poetry in the entire Bible. The first line has three words. The second line has five. The third line has seven The first line has 12 syllables, the second line has 14 syllables, the third line has 16 syllables, this building kind of crescendo to the poem. The first line has 15 consonants, the second line has 20 consonants, the third line has 25. Friends, this is 100% intentional. And interestingly, if you take out the Lord's name, there's only 12 words for the 12 tribes of Israel. This is the most complicated, packed, mathematical poem in the Scriptures. Exceptionally complex. This is the kind of thing that we read in English and go, well, that was just a neat thing to think of off the top of your head. And it's like, no, this is like the most perfectly scripted, beautifully constructed little poem. Well, Lord willing, we're going to draw a rich sermon out of this. If not a rich sermon, hopefully rich thinking in your head after the sermon is bad. The first point that to kind of consider as we look at this passage is really its starting point. It's a benediction, we know this. This is how all of the services in Israel closed. When you went to worship in the tabernacle, when this was happening, or you went to worship in the temple, every service ended with this. It's in shall terminology in the ESV to help your ears kind of catch. This was not optional. This is how everything ended. This was the close of God's interaction with mankind. The God who blesses. The interesting thing, though, is that it it frames out His character. Remember, uh, this part of the Scriptures, all of the Scriptures, but this part especially, was written to teach people who God was. The whole Bible is for that. 
But this part, when it's written originally, they've been taken out of the land of Egypt. They've been taken out of the house of slavery. They've been taken out into the wilderness, taken out into the desert by a God that they knew but knew very little about. I mean, if we're using kind of an, an, an analogy, this is the point in Israel's history where they're newlyweds. And they've been married for two weeks. How well do you know the other person? Right? Where we sit, we're looking back on 54 years of marriage. We've got some in here that have done that. Right? You know each other a little bit better after 54 years than you do two weeks. So what God is doing in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, in the various parts, this part specifically, is he's teaching them who he is. And teaching them how he thinks about his people, how he feels about his people, what his heart is like for his people, and interestingly, what is his heart like for his people? Speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. He's initiating it. He's the God who is the first cause. He is the beginning of it all. His life of blessing begins with Him. You see, this is in so many ways the reversal of Genesis 3. That's what we heard with Eve, wasn't it? Eve is interacting with the serpent and the serpent says, well, did God really say it? And she falls for his lie, and you have Moses capturing that moment so brilliantly. She has the lust of the eye. She has the lust of the flesh. She has the boastful pride of life. The fruit is there to make her wise. It's pleasing to the body, and so she sins. She is actively trying to improve her station in life. That's an important thing to understand. That's really what the fall is for Eve. It's her trying to make for herself a better life. It's just making for herself a better life outside the way that God has ordained. It'll make her wise, but not in a way that God has ordained. It will make her happy in a way that God has not ordained. It'll make her body feel full and it'll taste good, but not in a way that God has ordained. And so she tries to improve her life. Adam does the same. The interesting thing, though, is here in the wilderness, as God has taken them away from all of the good and great things in life, he's explaining to them that very sin that Adam and Eve fell by doing is the very thing that I do for you on a daily basis. You're trying to make your life better. You're trying to improve the the life that you get to live. That's what I'm doing. His entire relationship with his people is one of blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing. We have the New Testament authors kind of work through this as they go to think about like, he loved me before the foundation of the world. Now this is an interesting thing because many of us, we have this incorrect timeline in our heads. 
Most of us in our hearts, again, not if we actually get our thinking caps on, but most of us in our hearts think that God started loving us either when Jesus died on the cross or he started loving me when I became a Christian. That's, again, kind of emotionally, that's what we think. God, God loves me when, I, when he died, when Jesus died on the cross, or God loves me when I become a Christian. And friends, that's a lie, because in both of those things, what we're saying is, God loves me be, when I become lovable. God loves me when I become good because what Jesus did on the cross. God loves me when I become lovable, when I become a Christian, when I become worthy of his love. Interestingly, what's God working out in number six and in other places throughout the entirety of the scriptures? He loved you before he made you. He loved you when the only place that you existed was in his mind. He loved you when he formed you in the womb. He loved you when he nourished you through your mother's body. He loved you when you were a child, rebellious and evil, some of you. He loved you when you were a teenager, rebellious and evil, most of you. He never didn't love you. And friends, this is a massive distinction to make when we go to contemplate who God is. That if you are his child, there has never been a day in creation in which he didn't love you. You're going to see, this is going to reframe how we process our world. So on good days, it keeps us from getting too high in the clouds because he loved me then, but he'll love me on the next day too. On bad days, it keeps us from getting too far down into the depths because he loves me then, and he'll love me the next day too. In fact, actually, he's never not loved me. He loves me so much that his relationship with his people is one in which his priests are commanded. This is not optional. They're commanded. You have to bless the people of God. I love this. His his love is not just an intellectual idea. I I love fish intellectually. I hate to eat it, but intellectually I love it. That's That's not God, right? He loves his people, but then he puts it into practice. Immediately blessing. Friends, I've done almost two decades of pastoral counseling now. It is amazing the number of, of, of problems that we wrestle through as the people of God that the very root of our struggle is because we do not with a whole heart believe that God has loved me from before the foundation of the world. And the reason why he sent his son to the cross is because he loved me. And the reason why Jesus went to the cross is because he loves me. And the reason why the Holy Spirit has the worst job of all to live inside my heart, because he loves me. This is the God who blesses. 
We get to see what kind of blessing he gives. Three sentences that are clauses that build in power and size. The Lord bless you and keep you. So his love is a, a love that is outworking itself, working itself out through protection. This almighty God, the one who controls heaven and earth, the one who spoke creation into existence, is protecting you now. And you know, friends, some of you, I know you're having a good, good week, maybe a good run of weeks. It's been a good couple of months, a good year, and you're like, hey, you know what? That's cool. Can we go to the next point? Like, I'm, I got it. Kind of obvious. Well, friends, it's, it's, it's actually on the good weeks that you need to do the heart work to prepare yourself for the bad weeks. Because there's going to be a day coming where you're going to go, is he still protecting me? Does he still love me? I mean, it, it hurts so bad. It, it, this can't be what protection feels like. It's because with all three of these blessings, we actually define them incorrectly. You see, for all of us, and this is, this is real, this is a point right here. We define protection as the absence of something. The absence of violence. The absence of pain. The absence of uh, abuse. The, the, absen- the absence, the absence, it's all defined in the negative. But the interesting thing is God's description of protection is not one in the absence of, it's in the presence of. It's not an absence of people who will hurt your feelings, it's that God will be with you while they do. It's not in an absence of illness, it's that God will never leave you while you are. It's not in an absence of death, it's that the Lord himself would walk that path first, so you'll never be alone when you do. It's not an absence of tears. It's him crying them first. You see, our great struggle here, when we interact with God's blessings, is that we divorce the blesser from the thing that he's blessing us with. We forget. The Lord's primary blessing, the big thing that he gives is not money. It's not peace. It's not patience. It's not happiness. It's not the avoidance of tears. It's not getting getting sick. 
The primary thing he gives is himself. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The middle part captures that so richly. What's the center of God's blessing? What's the heart of God's blessing is that He gives Himself. The Lord, to make His face shine upon you. Now, I have the great privilege of professionally being one of those people that gets to be involved in weddings, and I get to have usually the best seat in the house. It's roughly two and a half feet from the people who are getting married. Not always, depending on the angle of the faces, but often I get the up-close view of what the groom looks like when he sees his bride. Right? That just kind of usually stupid idiot grin with eyes that are dancing with gladness. The joy in human form walking down the aisle. I get to see His face shine upon her. We forget. What God is explaining here is that that's how His face radiates with us in Christ. And again, I I, I love you. We don't believe that, do we? Even for those of us that are like, well, I think God kind of likes me. Some of the time, most of the time. I mean, when things are going well. We don't ever kind of think in this category, the description of like when the groom is watching his bride come in and to see his face light up with gladness over his bride-to-be. If only that were biblical language. Now, that's actually the exact picture that Jesus uses with his church. Ephesians 5. It's my favorite we get to see in Revelation at the end of the book where you get to the, the beautiful picture of the bridegroom showing up. Now, in Revelation, interestingly, and this is, I guess, a different cultural time, the bride is standing up front and the groom is the one that comes in the back. Arrayed in power and wrath and dignity and brilliance, the Lord Jesus shows up with a face that is radiantly in love with his church. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Again, it's built upon this gracious relationship. We know, have you earned God's favor like this? And I think, honestly, this is part of the struggle that we all have is like, I know what goes on in my head. I'm kind of glad you don't. I know what goes on in my head. And you're all sitting there going, well, you know what's going on in your head. Surely God can't think of me that way. And in some sense, we would say that's correct. But he thinks of Jesus that way. And if you're united to Christ, friends, this relationship is one of grace. It's it's given to you freely. I love this. This blessing is not transactional. 
This is one of those parts in Scripture where there's no, if you do this, then God does that. There's none of that. It's, do this to my people. Bless them with my name. Bless them with my face. Bless them with my presence. Bless them. Bless them. Bless them. Now, I do know that we're in the South and everybody here proclaims to be a Christian. I would be remiss to at least address, though, that I know there are often those in the room that are not. If you're listening to the sermon, you would say, wow, the preacher might be a little excited about this, and it's true. This is the entirety of my life, these three verses. But the point that 25 makes is that this can be your life too. Because this is a gift given freely by God, it's it's not something you purchase. You receive it. This is what shows up in the New Testament as being explained as being received by faith. You, You believe that God has done this. You confess your sins Believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, your Lord, and this is yours. Well, the blessings don't stop. That's two verses, 24, 25, 26, gets us into a new level. And again, we have have a wrong definition here that we have to correct. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. Again, this is the the regal countenance. Think of a... uh, the Brits, right? The queen shows her face to you, her favor to you. It's the royal term. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And that's actually where we have a faulty definition. Uh, our faulty definition is we define peace, again, by the absence of war or the absence of conflict, or the absence of people hurting me, or the absence of things like that. And that's not how the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, and the Jews especially, define peace. Peace was when things operate the way they're designed. I, I think probably my, in my head, the best example of what they mean by peace would be an extremely complex Swiss watch. You see the ones now they have, they're made where it's amazing. You can take them off and you can look at the back of the watch and the back of the watch has pure glass and crystal so you can see all of the gears moving and you flip over and the face has it too and you can see you know, those thousands and thousands of minute little pieces all turning at the exact right speed, at the exact right place so that all of the little gears catch each other correctly, the teeth grab each other, they all move easily and nothing inside is wrong. You see, that's the biblical definition of peace. It's, it's not the absence of conflict. It's the presence of things working correctly. And I like that. Because many of us, we'd go, <laughs> you know, there are a lot of things that define my life. Peace is probably not one of them. Right? I have that boss that yells at me. They're obnoxious and micromanager. I have that family member that You know, half the time I love them, half the time I might want to not love them. We'll leave it at that. 
I live in a world that's marked by violence. I watch the news more than I should. I'm on social media at all, which is probably more than you should. And we look and we see the presence of conflict everywhere. And in fact, actually, because we have a wrong definition, we look at this passage and we say, well, surely God's not keeping his promise. My life is disordered. It it seems like it's maybe falling apart. The world is falling apart. Yeah, he he cursed it in Genesis 3. He did a really good job. I wish maybe sometimes it weren't quite such a good job. No, what God is promising here is that He will be with us. His face, His delight, His joy will be with us. And even as He goes with us, we have the potential to be, because of His Word and His rich blessing, kind of like that eye in the middle of the hurricane. Perfect calm in the midst of chaos. While I am not old enough to know a day without Roe versus Wade until this week, I am old enough to remember Hurricane Hugo. Went over this area a couple of years ago. I was in fifth grade. And I remember waking up, the first trees started falling in the front yard. The first one almost came in my bedroom window. Probably miracle number one to keep me alive. Many. But as the first half of the storm passed by and the eye settled in, my mom and I went out and played in the yard. Actually ran the dog, took a walk, looked how bad the trees were. We, we went out and hung them, had a great time. Saw the wind start picking up. You could feel the pressure change, like, oh, time to go back inside. We moved back inside and then hid in the bathroom of the family and, you know, and while the rest of the storm blew over. We, we had this just intense moment of peace in the midst of destruction everywhere. <laughs> You know, we lost trees all over the yard without power for two weeks. I didn't go back to school. It would have been amazing, except the only house that had power was actually my fifth grade teacher. So I spent two weeks out of school at my teacher's house, which was the worst. You see, that's actually, I think, a, a good illustration of what's happening. God's talking about, it's like, I'm not going to spare you from the hurricane. What I'm offering you is the privilege to walk in the eye. What I'm offering you is the privilege to be freed of the turbulence of the winds, to watch the trees fall all around you, but to have a heart that is properly ordered, to have a mind that is properly ordered, to have hands that are properly ordered, to have a life that works in the midst of ruin. I suspect this is a point that is not talked about nearly enough in our kind of current cultural moment. Suicide is rampant. That's what, the number one cause of death now for people under 25? Certainly now that Roe v. Wade's done. We're watching it now start settling, I don't know if you've followed this, with college athletes. Particularly for whatever reason, track. Track and field, they've had students killing themselves all over the nation. It's like the pressure of a broken world is getting to them. The turmoil of a broken world is getting to them, and now, due to the internet and social media, man, we get to inject that trash right into our veins, don't we? We're watching a nation living disordered lives 
watching a nation that's, that's drinking the waters of death, that living a life that is self-destructive. We're watching a nation elevate our own thinking to cosmic levels. And it's not working, is it? It's destroying us. And interestingly, God's blessing, no, 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 friends. You have my face and you have my peace. You see, that's the real issue here. God blesses us with his presence. And this is a mistake that so many of us make is that we we somehow have managed to separate the idea of God giving gifts from God (laughs) so that we look for the gifts themselves. We look for money. We look for happiness. We look for resolution at that moment of conflict with our boss. We, We look for the good things in life, which he does give, but he gives them secondarily. You see, that's actually the problem because that's when we hit hard times and our legs get taken clean out from under us because we've based our idea of goodness in the gifts instead of our idea of goodness in his presence. You see, one of those preaches at a funeral and one of those doesn't. One of those preaches at a funeral because we can say, "Uh, your God has never left you and he will comfort you until the very end. And the other one says, well, I mean, he promises to take care of you. I don't know what happened that day. I'm so sorry. Hope it's better next week. In fact, actually, he even explains that in verse 27. So shall they, the priests, put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. I'm going to be with them. I live with them. I'm I'm traveling with them. I'm in the midst of their even communion as they travel. God blesses us. Now, very quickly, as I end, two just tangential points just to kind of fix our mind. One, again, being reminded this is all in Christ. If you don't know Christ, that's the key. He is the one that We have this standing in from the covenant of redemption even before the foundation of the world all the way through to today, even through to the end of time. That was what we confessed in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 12, paragraph 1. In adoption, we are in Christ. We are adopted by our Heavenly Father, and we have all of the rights and privileges and blessings of a child of the King. Secondly, and this is, I suspect, the point that might be a little bit more difficult for us to emotionally kind of come to terms with, is where this passage is located. Numbers chapter 6 is an interesting chapter. It's the chapter about the Nazarite vow. And the Nazarite vow was significant because the Nazarite vow was the way in which an average Jew could be as holy as a priest. See, normally a normal Jew was, they only could have this much holiness, they couldn't have this much holiness. They had limitations on what they could do, how holy they could be. However, uh, the Nazarite vow was an opportunity for them to be holy in a, a unique and special way, almost like a priest himself. Interestingly, it wasn't even confined to men. 
this is really important, that your Jewish women could live a, a life of holiness, a standard the way that the priests themselves could be. And it's interesting that the Lord, in some sense, is connecting these two ideas. That the Lord loves you, and he's making you holy. That he's, he's changing you and transforming you, and he's making you into a new person and live a new life. And maybe, as a point of kind of conviction, maybe some of us are going, I want the good life, I want that blessing, but I don't want to live the holy life. I want all the good things, I I want God's blessing, but I don't want to live differently. And friends, that's really interesting, these two things are connected. It's not cause and effect, holiness causes blessing. It's actually the other way around. God's blessing causes holiness. But some of you wonder why your life isn't more blessed. You wonder why you don't have more peace, more shalom, more right ordering of life. Well, sometimes, not all of us. Sometimes it's because we're not living a godly life. Trying to drive the car without gasoline, it's not working. Shouldn't be a surprise. Might it be? And we as a church would have these sorts of thoughts rattling around in our heads on a daily basis. So when the hard times show up, or those condemnations that rattle around in your head, some of you have those, when you look in the mirror, when that person that you interact with says that hateful thing again, that it doesn't just break you like a glass house, but instead this, this is our foundation, that no matter what comes, the Lord loves me, and he's showing his face to me even in the midst of difficulty, and he's protecting me, and he's keeping me, and he will never leave me, and he hasn't yet, and he never will. I suspect if we begin to think those sorts of thoughts on a more regular basis, perhaps our lives might be a touch more enjoyable, even in the midst of great difficulty. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you bless us so richly. It's undeserved, we know that. We don't even know the depths of our sin, but the bits that we do know are too oppressive to even consider. So we know this is given richly and freely to us. We thank you for Jesus who purchased your favor on the cross. Thank you that it was extended even in the covenant of redemption before the world was even made. Forgive us for our sin. Give us love for Christ, we ask In Jesus' name, amen.